just names. More than blocks of stone set in rows. More than memories. They are our brothers and sisters. Our parents and our children. Friends, loved ones, and even strangers who believe that we were worth fighting for, that we were worth dying for. They stand for justice, for courage, for heroism and fearlessness in the face of danger. They stand for the brave men and women who selflessly answered the call and gave their very lives for the cause of freedom. Let us never take their sacrifice for granted, but instead remember with gratitude those who have served. Today, tomorrow, and every day thereafter. By the grace of God, if we walk upon free soil, if we breathe in the sweetness of liberty, let us give thanks, let us honor the fallen, and let us never forget.
Would you just sing this with me right where you are seated? You don't have to stand. Let's sing this together. Oh, beautiful, for he was proved in the liberating strife. Who more than self their country love and mercy. chapter 1 in your copy of the scripture. We'll look at the subject matter this morning, the presentation of the king. The presentation of the king. We uh, last week started a series on the gospel of Mark and I told you last week how it is referred to as one of the synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning seeing the same. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke see the same. They, they see a similar uh, witness to the life of the Lord Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are different from John. John actually records some different discourses, some different events in the life of the Lord Jesus. Mark is, uh, Mark is obviously the shortest gospel it's believed to be the first gospel written, and Simon Peter is also believed to be the uh, key source behind Mark. We know that uh, Mark spent about 10 years in Rome with Simon Peter. I also mentioned last week how Mark moves very quickly. Uh, Mark will often summarize what the other gospel writers go into more detail about, Mark uh, writes in a very quick, staccato-type fashion, uh, using the word immediately, some 42 times. Immediately, Jesus did this, and he did that, and he did this, and immediately, he did this. It moves quickly. Now, as we look at our text today, uh, I think about preparation for ministry, and that makes me think of the conversion of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. When uh, Paul was converted, you will recall how he tried to spend time with the disciples and they were scared of Paul because they remembered his reputation of persecuting them. Barnabas comes alongside of him and uh, encourages the rest of the disciples that Paul is now indeed converted. He's a believer. And as we look at the writings of Paul, we know what Paul immediately did. He immediately went away into Arabia for a period of three years. And it was a time of preparation. You know, when somebody is called into the ministry today, we like to encourage them to go to school, to go to seminary, to spend some time in 
preparation for the calling that God has given to you. Well, as we look at Mark 1 today, we see an introduction to Jesus' ministry and we are immediately told about a time of preparation. We know that all the gospel writers are pretty well silent on the childhood of Jesus. They record the dedication of Jesus at the temple right after he was born. Then Luke tells us about how Jesus at age 12 was debating uh, in the temple with the religious scholars. From there, all that's really said about Jesus is that he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and men. After that, we come to the baptism narratives. All four Gospels record the baptism of Jesus. Then Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to record the wilderness temptation of Jesus. And they also record Jesus' calling of his first disciples. I want us today to see the first actions of Jesus when he was presented publicly as the Messiah. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, please. We're going to begin there in verse 9, and we'll read down through verse 20. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Folks, do you remember in the Old Testament? The people were told a matter had to be confirmed by two witnesses. What do we have here? Two witnesses at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the Father's voice saying, this is my beloved Son. Two witnesses. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And followed him. You may be seated. <clears throat> First thing I want you to notice with me this morning. Jesus' public presentation as Messiah. Uh, and to fulfill all righteousness through the act of water baptism. We see that in verses 9 through 11. Now folks, I know what you're thinking. I know what everybody thinks. When we look at the baptism of Jesus here in Mark chapter 1, we have to immediately wonder why Jesus was baptized. Last week we read how all of Judea was going out to be baptized by John for the remission of sins. But the Bible is very clear that the Lord Jesus was without sin. And so why in the world was he baptized? 
Certainly we see that John the Baptist seems to have opposed it initially. Everybody else was coming to John and he was baptizing them. But when Jesus came to John to be baptized by him, John said, I need to be baptized by you. John knew intuitively. He knew intuitively from God who Jesus was. I want you to remember elsewhere we're told in the Gospels that John had leaped in the womb of Elizabeth when Elizabeth heard the voice of Mary. Both ladies were expecting and when Mary spoke to Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaped in her womb. No doubt the two boys had some type of social interaction growing up, being in a related, from related families. Can't you hear some of those conversations? How's John? <clears throat> well, he sure does spend a lot of time in the wilderness. And instead of mama's cooking, he's determined just to eat bugs. That's all he ever wants to eat, bugs. I remember as a kid growing up, I, I ate worms. Uh, I, I ate dirt and got worms from it. <laughs> The, the eating worms were from, from last week when we were in South Africa, but I ate dirt, got worms from it. I remember doing that as a kid. One of my first uh, earliest memories uh, of my mom, we lived up at Lake Norman. Dad was with Duke Power, and they were getting Marshall uh, up and running and online. And Mom and Dad built a house, their first house in 1965, three-bedroom, two-bath home on two acres of land. Dad told me the grand total of that, land, house, everything, turnkey, $14,800. One of my earliest memories of just interaction, you remember back when you were a little kid, I was tiny thing, standing out back at the back of the house, eating dirt, eating dirt clods. And mom's walking around the back of the house to hang clothes on the line. She's hollering at me for, for eating dirt. <clears throat> Imagine these conversations. Yeah, he just doesn't want mama's cooking. And then she goes on to, to ask about Jesus, uh, Elizabeth asking Mary about Jesus. How's Jesus doing? And, and Mary says, you know, that boy is absolutely perfect. <laughs> he never sasses me and Joseph one bit. He always makes his bed, always eats his vegetables, always says, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. Don't you know he must have been a dream child to raise? <clears throat> Folks, know that as Christians, we do not believe some of the apocryphal stories about Jesus' childhood. There are stories from writings, there are not biblical stories, Christians don't accept them, of, of Jesus doing things like being down at the water's edge and taking clay and, and, and forming and fashioning that clay into animals or birds, for instance, and breathing on them and, and uh, birds fly away. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Just Kids, could you, could you imagine just making your own toys and breathing on them and they come to life? But again, Christians don't accept those stories. But we know that John and Jesus knew each other. And God had revealed Jesus' identity to John. And so John says, wait a minute, why are you coming to me to be baptized? 
John was baptizing for the remission of sin and he said, no, Jesus. So we know that John knew that Jesus wasn't being baptized for the same reasons that everybody else was to be baptized. John's gospel tells us that Jesus' baptism was in order to present Jesus to Israel as their Messiah. John says in John chapter 1 that the whole identity of the Messiah was made clear to him through Jesus' baptism. John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. God had told John that this would be the sign to him of the Messiah. And so the baptism was to make clear Jesus' identity. It was a formal presentation. Then you read Matthew. Matthew gives the explanation that Jesus' baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. Now at this point I want us to think theologically about other reasons why Jesus submitted himself to baptism. And I'm going to limit myself just talking about a couple of things here. But we know that Jesus died vicariously for us. He bore our sins even though he was sinless. And so if John is baptizing for the remission of sin and Jesus is without sin, then Jesus' baptism would demonstrate that he's representing us just as he represented us at the cross. Now, second thing to think of, theologians speak of both the passive as well as the active obedience of Jesus. The passive obedience would refer to the fact that he voluntarily offered his life up as a ransom for sins. He voluntarily allowed people to take his life to crucify him. Nobody forced this on him. He offered himself, as he said to Peter on one occasion, he could have called a legion of angels to rescue him if he wanted to avoid crucifixion. And then also we think of his active obedience. On the other hand, the active obedience refers to the fact that he lived a perfect life. He came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. Scripture says that Adam represented the whole entire human race. He was humanity at that point. And by his sin, he plunged the whole of humanity into corruption and death. When he sinned, in a very real sense, we sinned. And Adam's sin passed to us uh, also in the fact that we sin too. We have the nature of of Adam and scripture also points out how Jesus the second Adam represents us Paul in Romans 5 is saying all of humanity is summed up under the two Adams the first Adam and the second Adam Adam and Jesus and so Jesus the second Adam represents us by his obedience he redeemed his people for all of eternity now, folks, if you were to ask the average person in church, you could even go to a children's Sunday school class and say, what did Jesus do for you? What's everybody's going to say? If I were to ask you this morning, what did Jesus do for you? What would you say? He died for me. That's right. And that's only part of the story. Obviously a very important part, but that's only part of the story. 
if, if, if Jesus, if all he would have had to have done was offer a sin sacrifice, I suppose that God could have sent Jesus to the earth as a full-grown man, and he could have just dropped him in that Passover week. Jesus immediately gone to the cross, died for us, and then been taken up back up to the uh, Father in heaven. But that would have only taken us back to square one. We would no longer be guilty, but we still would have no positive righteousness before God. And so our Redeemer not only needed to die for us, but he also needed to live for us. Just as his death for sin is applied to us, so his righteousness in life is applied to us. The Father sees us not just as forgiven, but also clothed in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And so in summary, Jesus came to represent us, to present to the Father one who had perfectly obeyed, one who had faced everything that we do without sin, so that He could be the sin sacrifice. And so Jesus had to live out an earthly life, being faced with temptation, just as we are, yet without sin, so that when He did go to the cross for us, He was going there as the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish. That is, without sin. In his life, he perfectly fulfilled all of the demands of the law. He obeyed God in all things, both actively and passively. Both his life of righteousness as well as his sinless death were necessary. Now, John didn't understand all that at this point. And so Jesus said, John, just trust me now in all of this. Let's just, let's do this. A final thought about Jesus' baptism, I'll mention, would have to do with example. Christ has entered the waters before us. We are to follow his footsteps. Nobody should ever say, why should I do this? Because Jesus set the pattern for us, an example. And in our baptism, three things are communicated. Our union with Christ... In his death, burial, and resurrection, the fact that when we come up out of the water, we're raised to walk in newness of life and the washing away of our sins is pictured there. These things are part of Christian baptism. The first step of obedience. Now, second thing I want you to see is Jesus' identification with us in temptation and victory over the tempter. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, Jesus had to identify with us in temptation. He had to defeat the tempter and not to succumb to sin. And so in the providence of God, he demonstrates his victory over sin and that he faced and overcame temptation. He was not going to do what the devil wanted him to do. Now folks, I want you to notice verse 12 that says, This spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The word is ekbalo in the Greek. It's the same word that is used in the Gospels of Jesus casting demons out of people, for example. 
In this case, Jesus is hurled out into the wilderness by the Spirit. There is almost a violent nature to this word. And what is being communicated here is that Jesus had a divine appointment with the evil one in the wilderness. Out there alone, just Jesus and the devil, Jesus demonstrated his victory. Now folks, there's a couple of earlier events I think of. Adam was in the garden with everything, everything, and yet he failed. Jesus will be in the wilderness with nothing, and he will prevail. Also, the wilderness was the place where Israel was tested. And they grumbled. They wanted meat and bread. They sinned in the wilderness. Jesus will be tempted to take stones and turn them into bread, which he could have done, and he did not do. He was tempted, and yet he prevailed or the devil tempted him and he prevailed he did not do that and so Jesus did what Adam and Israel did not do now Mark's gospel is the shortest recording of all of the temptation narratives that we find in the New Testament you read Matthew and Luke and they're going to go into a whole lot more detail about the temptations but let's think about the temptations a moment there's a story that makes me think about what the devil is up to. Back in, uh, back in 2001, there was a British Columbia uh, nursery that was trying to track down people who bought poisonous plants that were mislabeled as being tasty in soup. Valley Brook Gardens, which distributed the plants, worked with government officials to locate the buyers of 17 improperly labeled perennials sold at stores in British Columbia and Ontario from April the 18th of that year to April 25th. The label should have read, all parts of this plant are toxic, but an employee wanting to play a bad joke switched the labels and, and put on the label instead. All parts of this plant are tasty in soup. Michael Benoit, the nursery's manager, said that the employee was making a practical joke, thought it would be quickly caught by any knowing about plants. Folks, what I want to say is the devil has done the same with us. God put a warning label on sin saying, Do not touch this or do not eat this. Do not partake of this. For if you do, you shall surely die. But the enemy switches the label and says, Looks good, tastes good. It's desirable to make one wise. But we know what the result is, don't we? It's death. 1 John says that we're tempted in three basic areas. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. These are the areas Jesus was tested in. These are the areas that you and I are tested in. Folks, I want you to understand that it is not a sin to be tempted. It is only a sin to give in to the temptation. You're going to be tempted 1 Peter 5 says we have an enemy. 
Satan and he is like a roaring lion and he's roaming to and fro on the face of the earth seeking somebody to devour. You are going to be tempted but you can also know you serve one who's overcome temptation. Did not give in to temptation and he can give you strength and wisdom through that temptation. Amen? We're not alone. But what we need to do is we need to do exactly what Jesus himself did. We need to fall back on the Bible. Do what the Bible says in each area of life. Satan comes along and he tries to get us to live uh, only by the physical dimensions to life. Jesus, you're hungry. Satisfy your physical appetite. Turn these stones into bread. And just think about how Satan does that with all of us. Make life only about the physical. Maybe it's food or maybe it's sex. Maybe it's something else. Satan says take matters into your own hands. Do whatever you want to do and just feed your desires. You need to indulge yourself to meet all of your physical needs. Another temptation for Jesus. Throw yourself down. God will save you. Force everybody to suddenly have to recognize you for who you are as God's son because he'll save you. It's the temptation to take shortcuts and put God to the test in this. For us, it might be Satan saying, don't do things the way God would have you do them. Take shortcuts in life to get what you want out of life right now. Don't wait on it. Get it right now. Take shortcuts. And still another temptation was to let Satan uh, go ahead and give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, avoid the cross. Avoid the suffering. If you'll serve me, if you'll bow down to me, if you'll rely on me, I'll go ahead and give you the whole world. And you know what? Satan tries to come to people today the same way. He gets you to focus on the world, all that's in the world. Get everything you can as quick as you can, as painlessly as you can. He tries to get us to focus our attention off of God and how God says that we're to do things. And he wants us just to focus on the world and what we can lay our hands on by any means possible. Folks, the devil's not that creative. This is how he continues to work. Satan tries to get you and me to take any, any desire we have and, and to twist it in some way. Instead of waiting on God, instead of doing things God's way, just do things, whatever the consequence, to, to meet your immediate satisfaction. He appeals to the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Again, his philosophy is getting anything, trying to get you to get anything that you want in any way you want and trying to make yourself great. Just think about yourself in this moment. That's what he tries to get you to do. Now, folks, it's so hard to understand this, but if we'll look to God and wait on God, he has the best waiting for us. Satan will always try to twist things and offer counterfeit things to you. But God wants you to wait, and he wants to give you the real thing. Amen? 
We've got to understand that God is our creator, truly does know what's best for each of us. And he has what's best waiting for those who are willing to look to him and trust him. And yes, you might have to wait. And yes, it may be difficult at times. But he knows best. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we know that Jesus overcame these temptations with the Word of God. With each of the temptations that Satan threw at Jesus, Jesus responded with the Word of God. He responded with what God's Word taught about whatever it was Satan was tempting him with. Folks, think about us today. What if with everything you faced in life, you stopped and said, what does the Bible teach me about this? And you fall back on that. You see, folks, you and I have the very same resource that Jesus relied on when he was in the wilderness. We have the Word of God. And that's why we, we need to know the Word. We need to know what it says about the different things we face in life. Because we know living in a fallen world, there's tons of bad stuff we're going to be faced with all the time. There's tons of decisions. There's lots and lots of forks in the road that we come to. And so we need to know the Word. What's God's Word say about this? And then rely on God to give you the strength to do what His Word says. He will do that. In society, there's such a pressure to get whatever we want and to look at things the way Satan is trying to get humanity to look at things. And you know what? It's unfortunate at the rate at which he is succeeding. Satan's succeeding, unfortunately. And that's why in the church, if we're going to be salt and light to a dark culture, one of the things we need to do as people interact with us is we're in, uh, in relationships, interpersonal relationships with folks and they're witnessing the way we're living our lives and the type of the decisions that we're making. They need to see how we make these decisions when we're in these difficult moments, just like they're in those difficult moments, and they need to see us relying on God. And his word. And you know what? They can learn through our example and our testimony in that. If we just go along with the world, they're going to say, See there, I'm just as good as those Christians. What do I need God for? What do I need church for? What do I need the Bible for? Brother so and so at work faced with stuff the other men at uh, work were faced with. And you know what? Brother so and so did the same thing everybody else was doing. Why do I need to go to his church? He's talked to us about going to church with him. Why do I need to go to church with him? He acts the same way at work that, that we all act at work. But if they see you doing things differently, it's going to be a testimony to them. But folks, there's even more in the wilderness temptations than meets the eye. Remember the children of Israel under Moses were in the wilderness for 40 years. 
It, it wouldn't have had to have been that long, but they failed. And as punishment, they wandered for 40 years until that generation died off. Jesus, though, is the head of the new people of God who were in him. And so representing all of us, he went into the wilderness and he succeeded where Israel failed. He represents us. He succeeded. He endured temptation without sin. A third thing I want you to see today. Jesus' announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, in very short fashion, Mark just simply announces about uh, John's arrest, he skips over all the details here. Mark is sort of like a newspaper reporter just, just hitting the highlights. He's quickly marching toward the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. We know that he's not forgotten some of the particulars that the other gospel writers camp out on. But Mark is on a mission to get to the main point. And the main point is what these verses right here represent. Everything about your Bible, everything about your Old Testament, everything about John's ministry was preparation period. Everything pointed to Jesus and now Jesus is here. The King has come. This is the time. For the Jew, the expression, the kingdom of God would be that time that God's Messiah would sit on David's throne and rule over all the nations of the earth from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, that's what the disciples were expecting. Lord, have you come to restore the kingdom to Israel? But, but in Mark's gospel, before that time of a literal rule, Mark wants us to see that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is also right now. Now in our hearts when Jesus sits on the throne of your hearts. Yes, it's going to be literal. Christ will reign whether you think it's going to be a millennial rule or the rule in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be literal. Christ will reign. As, as Daniel saw in the Old Testament, he saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream about all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of the Son of God. His kingdom will smash all others. But what John is saying, he's recording Jesus talking about that kingdom is now as well in Christ. It's now and not yet. And that's the tension you find in the Bible. The kingdom of God, we're waiting on the kingdom of God. But we are to live under the reign and rule of King Jesus even now. We are to be his subjects even now following him. Now he is your king and he is reigning and ruling. And the kingdom of God is experienced through a person, Jesus. But if you want to experience the kingdom of God, two things are required. Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Those things are always twins in the Bible. 
to experience God, to experience His rule in your life. You know what you've got to do and what I've got to do? We've got to turn away from our sin and a life of sin and how much we love sin at times. We've got to turn away from that and turn to Jesus and trust Him. Repentance and faith. So oftentimes people want one without the other. They want faith without repentance. They want to experience God, but they don't want to have to give up their sin that they love. And folks, it doesn't work that way. As somebody once wisely said, hands that would lay hold of Christ must first be emptied of trifles. What are you holding on to that you love more than Jesus? If you're going to experience Jesus in your life and his reign and rule in your life, you've got to give up that, what, that which your hands are holding on to. You've got to come to him in surrender saying, Lord, I want you more than everything. You know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. I want you more than all of this stuff. Are you willing to do that? Fourth thing I want you to see, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Folks, several things illustrated here. In God's mission, God is going to use men to reach men. As Jesus said in the Great Commission, you shall be my witnesses. But it also illustrates how God placed men with his son from the very beginning to be witnesses of everything. Remember how I mentioned earlier at least two witnesses? Well, here you have 12 witnesses in all time it's said and done that are going to be disciples of Jesus. That are going to move about with him for three years learning everything about him. And they're going to be witnesses of everything that they see him do and hear him teach. The other gospels point out how Jesus spent a great deal of time in prayer before he called these men. It would be important to call just the right men. But one thing we see is he's calling ordinary people to follow him. Folks, these were fishermen. These weren't the scholars of Athens, Greece. The university there. These weren't the power brokers in Rome. These were ordinary men just like you and me. Fishermen there on the Sea of Galilee that he called to follow him. And he told those men, you follow me and here's what I'm going to do in your life. I'm going to transform your life and what you're about. I'm going to change you. I'm going to turn your world upside down so that you'll begin fishing for people. 
And it's a great encouragement to know that he calls ordinary people just like you and me. Gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? You don't have to be a who's who in the world. You might be on the who's not list. And you can follow Christ and be his disciple. And it's like the Bible says, when ordinary men follow him and he transforms us and does in and through us what only he can do, then people step back and look at our lives and, and what do they say? They say, glory to God. God could be the, God is the only one who could do that in that man's life or that woman's life because I knew what they used to be like. And they see what God is able to do in you and me. And you know, that's a witness to them of what God can do in them too. Amen. You know, in Luke 9 and Luke chapter 14, there were people who came up to Jesus. And they said, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I'll, I'll be in that number of those ordinary men and women following you. Count me in. And Jesus said to one young man, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you may not have anywhere to call home either. Somebody else said, I'll follow you, but let me first go home and bury my father and mother. And, and what that young man, it's believed, was saying, let me go home and live with my parents until they age out, they die, they're gone, time, all that's said and done, they're out of the way, and then I'll come and follow you. Jesus said, no, doesn't work that way. And he says, you determined to follow him, uh, you put your hand to the plow, you look to the right or to the left, and you're not even worthy to be his disciple. He calls us to be disciples, just like he called these men. But folks, you and I need to see that it is a serious call. It is not something to trifle with. The things of God are not something to trifle with. It's not something to be careless and casual about. And to think, I'll follow him on my terms. If everything's going my way and to my liking, I'll follow him. You know, we look for perfect circumstances, but it's not going to be that way in this world. And we can't make excuses. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, What man going out to meet an army with the army of his own doesn't first sit down and consider the cost? Can he defeat that enemy? And if he can't, he pleads for terms of agreement. Or what man going to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost. He doesn't want to get in the middle of building that tower and then he runs out of resources and then he becomes a laughing stock. You and I have to count the cost of being a disciple. Yes, he calls ordinary men and women to follow him. But those ordinary men and women have to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Are you willing to lose your life for his sake? Jesus said, you want to save your, your life? You'll lose it. You lose your life for my sake in the kingdom. You'll save it. You want to gain the world? You're going to lose everything. You're willing to give up the world? You, I'll give you what you need. 
You want to live for instant satisfaction? You can't be his disciple that way. We've got to count the cost. But if you and I will count the cost and live in obedience to God, he will do things in our lives that we could have never dreamed of. Oh, you may not ever be great in the eyes of the world. Don't don't think I'm telling you that. Don't think I'm telling you you're going to be rich and powerful and famous and all that. You may be a nobody. But you're going to be able to look back on the course of your life. And you're going to see what only God was able to do. And you're going to say, praise God. You know, I've met people get to the end of their lives. And they sure did regret that they didn't take discipleship more seriously. I've never spoken to a senior adult who was a wonderful example of faith who said, Pastor, you know what? I'm sorry that I followed Christ. Never met such a person. Folks, one thing you will never find in your Bible, you will never find where following Christ simply means walking an aisle at a church, confessing Christ as Lord, and then walking out of the church to just going back and living whatever kind of life you want to live. That's false faith. We need, to, we need to be so tired of people thinking they're a Christian just because maybe they raised their hand when they were seven years old in a vacation Bible school and yet they've never lived for Christ their entire lives. There's never been any fruit. Their life has been a life of disobedience. And yet they say, I'm a Christian. No, no. Being a Christian means you follow Jesus. He calls you, you forsake all, you follow Him. And you live a life that bears fruit for His glory. That's what being a Christian is all about. You don't follow God and I don't follow God on our own terms. He's God. And we're not. Let me ask you to bow with me please. And as you bow. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. I just want you to think about this passage. How Jesus came being baptized. Defeating temptation. And announcing that the time was fulfilled. And calling disciples. Jesus has come and done for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. He's represented you in both life and death that you might partake of his life. Have you come to him? Have you trusted him? Have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? That's the first step of obedience. It shows your identification with him. And that you no longer desire to let a life of sin be what defines you. You want to be raised to walk in newness of life that Christ gives. Think about temptation. He's been there. He's experienced that in the worst of scenarios. He can come to your aid.
Are you following him on his terms? Or is it this easy believism? I'll just confess him with my lips and then go on and live however I want. Lord, we thank you for this beginning chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Very quick moving, but very powerful. We thank you that you came to seek and save that which is lost. If I'm speaking to a lost person today, God, I pray that you would move upon their heart through the power of your Spirit and draw them to Jesus. For those who know at some point in the past they've committed their hearts and lives to Jesus. Lord, press upon their hearts what it means to continue to follow you. A Christian life is about following Jesus. Give us the strength and power to do that. And God, where we have failed, forgive us. Empower us to walk in the newness of life that you offer. Empower us to be your witnesses. Lord, we live at a point in, in history where people more than ever need to see the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ takes sinful, wretched lives and he turns them upside down, cleanses them, and gives them a new purpose and a hope. May that be the message we share with our loved ones, our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and schoolmates. We have good news to tell. Lord, thank you for including us in your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?